0: All right, well, we are here to study the Word of God now, and we've devoted the remainder of our service for just that, and we're excited to do that. We pick up in our study the book of Galatians that we started just a month or so ago, and already we're seeing the great benefit of this book, this letter, really. It is a letter. I want to begin with a few questions this morning just to set the stage and uh here are the series of questions that I have. They're questions that really come from the text, and that is, well, where does your validation for your lifestyle come from? Your, your, your validation for your lifestyle. Your confirmation for what you do, and who you are, and why you are what you are, and what you are. <laughs> What is the answer to those questions? Here, here's another way to ask those questions. On what or by what authority do you live your life? Who ultimately sanctions what you do and, and, and say, ethically speaking, of course, morally speaking? Who determines that? Well, most Christians would answer, well, God is. He's my authority. I do what he tells me. Well, that sounds right, doesn't it? Of course. What other answer is there for Christians? But I would submit to you that that for many Christians, that answer is more theoretical than practical. Judging by the direction of the church in America, uh, that that it has been going in what I would consider to be a a direction of compromise, and, and in some cases even apostasy, I would contend that more Christians than we would care to admit find their confirmation and validation, their authority, not in Scripture, really, but in their own minds. Huh? How's that? Well, they find it in their own experiences, by what they see, or by sight, rather than God's truth, or by faith. You see, when they say that God is their authority, they don't usually mean what God has stated unequivocally in his word, but rather what they think or more accurately, what they feel intuitively that God expects of them. We saw a couple of decades ago with the What Would Jesus Do bracelets sold around the country. Such an American Christian thing to do, isn't it? It sounds so good. What Would Jesus Do? I've got to ask that question before we do anything. But there's a subtle deception behind that, whether you realize it or not. How do you know what Jesus would do? Ah, well, that's left up to the individual to determine for himself. And most of the time, people believe that Jesus would do exactly what they would do, you see. But if we want to be precise about this, we should be asking not what would Jesus do, but what does Jesus tell me to do in his word? That, of course, would require personal study of his word, which most do not want to do. And besides, that's a little bit too long to fit on a bracelet. Your authority, beloved, is God's written word, the Bible, Scripture, special revelation, God's mind in black and white. And what we believe about Scripture is not open to various interpretations, but has only one correct interpretation with Various applications. God has spoken plainly to us in his word. And his gospel especially is clear and plain. In fact, plain enough for even a child to understand. We come to an extended portion in our study of Galatians where Paul defends his authority of his apostolic position and also his apostolic message, specifically the gospel message. So I want you to turn with me to Galatians chapter 1, if you're not there already, and let me show you what I mean. In verses 11 and 12, the apostle says this, For I would have you know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel, for which, uh, the gospel which was preached by me is not of human invention. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So reads the word of God. Now, as we make our way through these two verses this morning, I want you to keep in the back of your mind, in your brain, how vital it is to our spiritual lives that we preserve and protect the authority of God's Word for morality, for ethics, for life and godliness. How important is this? Now before we mine this text for spiritual truth, let's, let's remind ourselves once again that We're reading a letter, right? A letter, a piece of personal correspondence from Paul to his spiritual sons and daughters, the Galatians. It is a heartfelt letter. Hopefully you've picked this up as we've worked our way through just a little bit so far. It's a heartfelt letter that takes the form, actually, of a strong rebuke. We also made the point that that letter writing is not really as good as in-person. We didn't have to really argue that. I think we all know that. Verbal communication is in person is much better. Where well, you can see the person that you're talking to. See his nonverbal expressions. Get a better idea of his attitude and, and his actions in, in the whole communicative process. Letter writing has a greater risk, you see, of being misinterpreted. You may write a letter... That is cogent and well thought out, but not always, not always are you sure that you're going to get your tone across or convey your message in the spirit intended. Isn't that why emojis were invented? You know, in our new world of social media, to be sure that you don't take something that I say negatively that is meant to be taken positively, I stick a little smiley face at the end of the sentence. Emojis convey tone. And we see why? Because a lot of that's missing in text. They let the recipient know our mood. In the days before social media, when letter writing was still the norm, which was not too long ago, we conveyed the tone of our message in various ways, with figures of speech, changing up the word order, using rhetorical questions, sarcasm, and emphasizing certain words, Maybe, maybe writing them out in big capital letters, you know. And it, was, and it was no different from Paul in the first century. Let me show you what I mean. This is to convey tone. Now, remember, this is a personal piece of correspondence. The first word in verse 11 is one example of what I'm talking about. Your translation may have for, F-O-R, the little word for. <clears throat> but that doesn't really carry the force of Paul's tone. Now this word translates a Greek conjunction that has a few meanings, but here it certainly is meant to carry over Paul's emotional outburst that he has in verse 10. In our study of that verse, we argued that Paul was, of course, denying the accusation that he was customizing his gospel to please his audience. That's a a thought that was repulsive to him. He states for the record that he, as a slave of Christ, does not preach to please men but God. And he's about to give his reason why in the rest of chapter 1 and most of chapter 2. So this connecting word for is best translated. And the reason why is this. So it conveys the reason. It shows us that he's going to give us the reason. You can get a better idea when you read, read it with verse 10. the essence of the two verses together goes something like this. No, I'm not pleasing men. And no, I don't tailor my gospel for each audience so that people will accept it. And this is the reason why. That's the little word for. We could put it in the form of a question, if you prefer. And do you know why it's preposterous that I would ever seek to please men rather than God with the gospel message that I preach? Yeah, all that's in the little word for. Or we can even get closer to his attitude with this. Just in case you missed it the first time around when I preached this unique gospel, here's the reason. Paul Paul's disgust over the accusation that he tailors his gospel to to, the, to appeal to his audience carries over in this little word for. Here's another example. Another example is how he of how he communicates his tone is in the next phrase. Your translation might say. I make known to you, brothers and sisters. (laughs) And that's a literal translation. I make known to you. But it doesn't express Paul's feelings very well. Now what you need to understand, and you wouldn't know this this ordinarily, uh, this phrase translates a Greek verb that was used in first century Hellenistic letters to formally introduce an assertion or a fact, formally. This is how it was done. So Paul actually uses this word in other places in his letters. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, for example, verse 3. He says, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. A very important fact. He makes this assertion formally. Another is 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. Now, brothers and sisters, we make known to you the grace of God which has been given to the churches in Macedonia. <clears throat> okay, so Paul uses it <clears throat> the same way here in verse 11 to assert that his gospel was not a human invention. But of course the Galatians already knew that. Paul is telling them something that they already knew, but apparently they had not taken the heart. When someone states, beloved, what is obvious to you, as if he is teaching you something new, his intention is not to give you information, but to cause you a bit of shame. We need to see that Paul is shaming the Galatians a bit because they knew better. And so a better rendering of this might, of I make known to you, brothers and sisters, would be something like, for your information, brothers and sisters, or just in case you missed it the first time around, brothers and sisters, or if you were paying attention, brothers and sisters, or let me explain it to you again and state for the record, by introducing his intention to state the obvious, He means to bring shame upon them. And Paul is firm about it. Now, don't mistake firmness for disrespect or spite. The Galatians were Paul's spiritual sons and daughters in Christ. He loved them. He cared for them. He knew that they needed a firm talking to if he was going to snap them out of the spell that the Judaizers had of them. Let me, let me then read verse 11 for you in context with verses 9 and 10 in a way that I think best captures Paul's mood. Here we go. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. There, does that sound like I'm trying to seek the favor of men or God? If I were trying to please God. People, I would not be a slave of Christ, and just in case you missed it the first time around, brothers and sisters, my gospel is not the invention of man. Wow. This is a rebuke. Paul means business. Now when you put it that way, we have a clear idea of his tone. He's urgent, he's serious, in debate mode, and ready to make a defense for his apostolic office He's not fooling around. This situation is a serious matter. He speaks to their shame. Paul rehearses with the Galatians what was obvious to them, what he no doubt told them in his first missionary journey when he was with them, that he received this calling and this message directly from the Lord Jesus Christ. The false teachers criticized Paul's message by raising doubts in the minds of the Galatians, about his apostolic calling. The two are related. So Paul addresses both these issues, his calling and his message, but he starts with the message first. It's in verses 11 and 12, which I just read a little moment ago, and I'll sum them up this way. Jesus himself gave the gospel as special revelation. That, I think, is the main idea well, let's see how Paul argues this. He says, first of all, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is of divine origin. Divine origin. Verse, verse 11 and first part of verse 12. The gospel, which was preached by me, is not of human invention, for I neither received it from man nor was I taught it. Now, I love Paul's declaration of the origin of the gospel because it comes with and unav- with unavoidable implications about the Christian faith. I wish we could enumerate the many of them. Here are just two right off the bat that we would do well to remind ourselves of, just implications of this. First, if the gospel comes from God, then we have no business whatsoever tampering with it. That's one implication. It's not, our, it's not ours to do with as we please. Here's another. If Paul was accused of changing it to please people, well then it makes sense that the true gospel is sure to offend. Right? If you have to change any part of it to make it more pleasing, then it is by nature offensive. But we might add, it's the offensive gospel that is God's means both to save whom he will and harden whom he will. We can get more specific, because the Apostle does. When he says that the true gospel is not a matter of human invention, he explains further in verse 12 what he means. He means, first of all, it is not a product of the human heart. For I neither received it from man, he says. The gospel that Paul preached was a divine message. He didn't make it up, and neither did anyone else. In fact, it is not a product of the human heart, but a product of God's mind. And when you think about this a bit further, you have to admit that no depraved heart would ever devise such a gospel, right? Do you ever sit down and write this gospel? Why do we say that? Because it points out the fact that we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. Because it condemns us. There's that offense again. We would never devise a gospel like this. We know the kind of message that the depraved mind prefers. We hear it all the time, expressed in in many different ideologies, the social gospel, the prosperity gospel, the view that man is inherently good and can achieve heaven by his own, uh, own works, or that there are many ways to God, that everyone will be just fine, and on and on it goes. Most fashionable one today, I believe, is this one. You are your own God, and you can recreate yourself into whatever you want to be. How do you like that one? That sells. Mm -hmm. If you feel like being someone else or something else, go right ahead. You are. You are what you feel. You have the power to create. You are your own God. Now, that's the same lie, by the way, that Satan gave to the first couple back in the garden. Those, it seems to me, really, are the kinds of messages that come from the world. And the one that comes from American Christianity, beloved, is really no better. At best, misguided and compromised American churches simply emphasize the positive parts of the Bible or the message, and they leave out the offensive parts. They say, you can go to heaven, just believe. That God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, etc. The Judaizers of Paul's day, who infiltrated Galatia, they customized their gospel for sure. They customized the true gospel, adding works to it. And in so doing, they turned it into a false gospel, as we'll learn later. Paul tells us that their motives for tampering with the gospel were all self-serving. But that's later. Once you add to the pure gospel of grace, you take away from it any of its important integral parts, you then effectively turn the gospel into something else. That's just the way it is. And the new product that goes by the same name is not the means by which God works through to regenerate souls. God does not work through it because it's no longer His word. Paul says here that we received, what we received, or what he received rather, was not a human message devised in the depraved human heart, but very much a message that came from Christ himself. He said the same thing in different words in 2 Timothy 3.16. He said, all scripture as God breathed came right from his mouth. And our gospel is the result of God speaking his mind. It's an inspired message, and the only one of its kind. What else do we learn from Paul in verse 12? Well, in addition to the fact that the apostles, the apostolic truth was not the product of the human heart, Paul also assures us that it was not the product of oral tradition either. Now, what's going on here? Well, he says that as an apostle of Christ, he was not taught the gospel from men. That's what it says. Now, the word that Paul uses for teach here, I'm referring to the phrase was not taught, was also a technical word. Paul uses a lot of technical words. This particular one was a technical word that referred to the practice of passing down oral tradition of the elders from one generation to the next. Okay, That's really what that word referred to, that kind of process. (laughs) This tradition of the elders is not scripture. In fact, one of Job's false counselors, Bildad, you may remember, there were three false ones, offered Job counsel that was founded on human tradition from past generations, which is neither absolute nor scripture. This is what he said to Job. For ask the previous generation and pay attention to what their ancestors discovered. Since we were born only yesterday and know nothing, our days on earth are but a shadow. Will they not teach you and tell you and speak from their understanding? Well, their understanding was quite wrong. more obvious example of this would be the tradition of the Pharisees that Jesus condemned in the Gospels, that rabbinic tradition, which was human con- commentary on God's word and and human rules set up around God's Word that was passed down orally from one generation to the next. Eventually it was codified. You'll find it in the Talmud and the Mishnah. Now there's nothing wrong, by the way, with this mode of communication, that is the passing down of information from one generation to the next, as long as the information that's communicated is God's truth, you understand. The tradition that was passed down within Israel was not, and Jesus let the religious leaders of his day know that. His accusations against them are in Mark 7. He said, "...teaching as doctrines the commandments of men, neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men." He was also saying to them, "...you are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition." You see how this works. But millions of saved Israelites—I'm talking about the remnant—they did catechize their children from one generation to the next with Scripture, and this was the way that important ethical, spiritual teaching was preserved in the godly line of Israel. Christians do the same thing today—at least they should. And unlike unlike Paul, you and I did receive the gospel message from another saved individual, right? It was passed to us. I would also say that Paul himself did receive information about the life of Christ before his conversion and after his conversion. That's also true. He doesn't deny that before his conversion. Let's see if you can just picture this. It's it's really something uh, that... uh, that we wouldn't ordinarily think about. But Paul would have heard plenty of testimony from those Christians that he persecuted. Did you ever think about that? He, They would have spoken of the fact that God confirmed Jesus through miracles, and that he rose from the dead and ascended to heaven. Paul would have heard this. He heard Stephen preach before he approved his death. But historical facts about Jesus from others before conversion was not the gospel. And it was not saving, as Leon Morris notes in his commentary, to know these facts is not to know Jesus. Paul has no knowledge of the risen Savior. Paul saw saw no significance in them. And besides, Paul rejected Jesus' resurrection. After his conversion, Paul did see the other apostles and did hear their stories of the Master and his three-and-a-half-year ministry, in fact, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul claimed that Jesus appeared to Cephas, and then the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. Now, he, he would have learned that from the apostles. He would have also learned about the institution of the Lord's Supper from them. He says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three. 23... For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread in the same way he also took the cup and so on. So that's all fine. They certainly filled him in on the new Christian tradition, but certainly not the gospel. Oh no. By the time Paul met the Jerusalem apostles, he was already saved. He hadn't talked with them. Paul received the gospel and embraced it at his conversion on the road to Damascus where Jesus appeared to him and gave him the gospel. He heard it there with new ears and believed it. And it was then that Jesus commissioned Paul to be an apostle on that road. So by using his this technical word for passing down the information from one generation to the next, Paul flatly denies that he ever learned the gospel from men. Rather, he received it straight from the Lord's mouth, unlike Paul's opponents, in fact, who did receive their information from the apostles. And they skewed it. And while we today don't receive the gospel the way the Apostle Paul did. What we have received by the faithful preaching of others is no less the word of Christ. It is the pure gospel. We cannot claim to have received it directly from the Lord as Paul did, but we can with Paul claim that the gospel that we have is part of that apostolic truth that Jesus taught. And that brings us are the other half of Paul's thesis. The gospel of Jesus Christ is special revelation. Paul's gospel came from Christ in a revelation, that's what he says, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul's gospel didn't originate from the human heart, nor was it passed down to him by his ancestors as all his Pharisaical teaching was. He had already, made, already uh, made the point that Scripture is the inspired Word of God, and the process of inspiration has nothing to do with human instruction and everything to do with the working of the Holy Spirit. Let me just digress for just a moment and speak to this process of, of, of inspiration. In Second Peter chapter 1, we heard read today a, a little bit of this, In verses 20 and 21, Peter says, But we know, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture becomes a matter of someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. Again, in 1 Corinthians 2.13, Paul also speaks to this process when he says, We also speak these things not in words taught by human wisdom, But in those taught by the Spirit, capital S, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. It's a very mystical process. The basic understanding is that the Holy Spirit moved the men to write. That's really all we can say. They wrote what they wanted, and what they wrote was what God wanted. F.F. Bruce puts it this way quote, God moved the writer to record the content God wanted us to have in the manner that he wanted, so that what what we got was the message that he wanted, end quote. Also in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, it says, God, who at various times and various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. Now, there are two levels of communication in Hebrews 1, verse 1. God spoke through the prophets, that's one, to the fathers, that's the other. So We have a vertical and a horizontal going on here. God spoke the Old Testament to the prophets in various ways, or more precisely, in various modes of inspiration. That's God to humans. According to this passage, God conveyed his word to the prophets in many ways, not just an audible voice. He also used dreams and visions and oracles and signs. The bottom line is that the conveyance of God's truth always began with God, who then communicated it to his chosen prophets and apostles so that they then could communicate it to us. That's the horizontal when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ, Jesus obviously explained it to his apostles during his three-and-a-half-year ministry, but also directly to the apostle Paul as well in a vision. Paul's reception of the gospel was nothing short of divine. Now, you and I receive the gospel from others who witness to us, right? We have. That's how we heard the gospel. And they received it from others, and those received it from still others, and on and on it goes. We received, this, we received it in this way, the Galatians received it in this way, but there really is no other way to receive the gospel, really, by the preaching of the word. Paul talks about that in Romans. We need a preacher to go out and tell, how else will they hear? And that's exactly what Jesus commanded the church to do as well in the Great Commission. Go and tell the world. But it started first with the apostles, of which Paul was one. started there. They received the words of eternal life directly from the Lord Jesus Christ. In this way, Paul claims to have been taught by no one, not even the other apostles, Jesus gave it to him when he was converted, and he commissioned Paul as an apostle on the road to Damascus. Now, just for the record, only the apostles claimed to have received the gospel firsthand from the Lord himself. It was strictly and uniquely the experience of the apostles of Christ, no one else. And it was necessary for them to have this honor because, as Paul will say in Ephesians 2, 19 and 20, that God's household was built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. So the foundational office of apostle was necessary to build the church, but now it served its purpose, and it it ended with John, who was likely the last apostle to die. Contrary to the Roman Catholic Church, there is no such thing as apostolic succession can happen. Foundation was laid. That's it. The conclusion that Paul wants the Galatians and us to reach is a simple one. As I say, Jesus himself gave the gospel as special revelation. It is not the product of the human heart, nor is it of Oral tradition, the apostles received it directly from the mouth of the Lord. What does that mean for us? Well, here are at least two applications that to me are inescapable. The lesser is this one. We need to treat Christians according to what their
1: actions deserve. Hmm. What's this mean? (laughs) Another application
0: uh, or this particular application, rather, is the model Paul leaves for us to follow when it comes to treating professing Christians in a way that will best minister to them. I can, I can see you're still wondering, hmm, what's this all about? Well, we said that Paul speaks to the Galatians' shame by stating the obvious to them. I'll have you know, brothers and sisters. Uh, we might understand it this way. Though they knew better, they were carrying on as if they didn't. So Paul speaks to them in a way that their behavior deserves. They were displaying apostate tendencies, pulling away from orthodox truth of the gospel, acting as if they had not known it, which is why they listened to the Judaizers. So Paul treats them according to what their behavior deserves. And therein lies the principle for us. Treat fellow Christians according to what their behavior deserves. We have to start there. Why? Well, there's no other way to treat someone without knowing their heart. We cannot know their heart unless they tell us. There are times, no matter if it's a text or in person, when we have to be frank with another believer who has turned aside from the straight way and heads in a wrong direction, one that will actually cause him serious harm, cause serious harm to his to his spiritual walk of Christ. In order to give him a wake-up call, we need to respond to this person as his attitude and behavior deserves. As the proverb says, answer a fool according to what his folly deserves. That's what I'm talking about. We might begin by rehearsing with him the basic truths of the gospel of gospel living, since he knows better. This will evoke in him a certain amount of shame and embarrassment. We have a precedent for this, by the way. I'm not making this up. We have a precedent for this for, for this from Jesus himself. In Matthew 15, where he leaves for us the process of church discipline. In verse 18, where Jesus speaks of the fourth stage of church discipline, we read this. Treat him, that is the sinning believer, like an unbeliever. That's what he says. This is one of the most glaring examples. Here is a person that refuses to repent and has been removed from membership by this time. For all we know, since we cannot know his heart, he is a fellow believer. The the verse does not tell us that we are to proclaim him an unbeliever, but rather we are to treat him like one as Jesus commands. Treat him according to what his actions deserve. So we state the obvious to him by evangelizing him. (laughs) There's nothing more embarrassing to an unrepentant Christian who has been baptized and once held membership in good standing in the church than to be evangelized. Think about that. What What are you doing, giving me the gospel? I'm already a Christian, he protests. And we say, but you're not acting like that. Sometimes the best thing that you can do with a fellow Christian who's been captivated by sin and carrying on in a way that is not consistent with his confession is to state the obvious to him. And in a way, that stuns. Hopefully, the shame he feels over his sin will wake him up. But to the greater application. The greater application is this. Jesus has commissioned us to preach his message just as we have received it. And that last part is very important. Just as we have received it. Because Paul received Christ's gospel and gave it to us, those of us saved by it are likewise called to proclaim it as we have received it. The fact that the Galatians were entertaining a variant variant of the true gospel and understood it to be the real deal indicates that they missed what made the gospel unique. There is an Old Testament formula, I know you know it, God uses it when he wants to stress to his people that they should obey his word as he has given it, exactly as he has given it. We find it, for example, in the early chapters of Deuteronomy, it goes like this, Deuteronomy 12.32, Whatever I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to nor take away from it. That's the formula all over Deuteronomy. The sage in Proverbs 30, verse 6, says the same thing. Do not add to his words, or he will rebuke you, and you will be proved a liar. A different version of it occurs in Ecclesiastes 12, verse 12, where the sage warns us not to go beyond the word. He says, But beyond this word, my son, be warned. The idea is to not go beyond what God has written for life and godliness. As I say, it came to be understood really as a divine formula for preserving God's truth as received, which is why Jesus gives it again at the end of the book of Revelation. Chapter 22, verse 18, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. Obviously, this prohibition stands for any part of God's Word, especially the Gospel. Yet many in American Christianity have no problem tampering with it. Oh, I tell people the Gospel all the time, someone from a large contemporary church says so proudly. And most people that I talk to about it, well, they appreciate it and they want to know more. When I hear that, I cannot help but wonder, well, what version of the gospel are you giving that most people would appreciate hearing it? Now, last I checked, the gospel is offensive message to the, to the depraved ear, a stench of death to those who are perishing, and that endangered Paul's life most <laughs> of the time he preached it. Well, it's a, it's a compromised gospel, that's what it is, of course, one that fits the Fits in with the postmodern thinking, with the woke thinking, with the critical race theory that tickles the ears of the unregenerate. And what is unique about the gospel? Well, it's been removed, it's been sm- smoothed over. Do you proclaim the uniqueness of Jesus' gospel accurately? Do you? It's a great question, one that we ought to be asking ourselves in this day. Many today play fast and loose with the gospel, thinking that they have the freedom to interpret it according to their own way of thinking. In religiously pluralistic and postmodern society, the tendency is to make the gospel more acceptable by emphasizing the positive parts, like God's love, and downplaying or ignoring altogether the offensive parts, like God's wrath and condemnation for sin. No doubt many in, many in churches feel justified in doing this because they see results. You can attract more people to the church with a kinder, friendlier gospel than you can with an offensive one. You don't even have to go and get a degree for, to, to know that, right? That's a strategy. People will unify over a gospel that is vaguely defined because that allows each person the freedom to define it the way he wants. But this message is not a gospel, and it doesn't save anyone. Rather, it deceives people into thinking that they are Christians when they're really not. This is the tragedy of the counterfeit gospel. It creates a false sense of salvation. And by the way, it also creates a false sense of unity. This is not unity unity that is manufactured among people by allowing them to define the gospel on their own terms is not true organic unity that the Holy Spirit creates, but a man-made one that will not last. You can be sure of that. Gospel is a unique message of God and he uses it both to save and to condemn, to draw people to himself and to harden their hearts to the truth. But that's not our business. Now Jesus calls us to preach His gospel as we have received it in the Bible, unaltered, unadulterated, that God may work through it as He pleases. Are you faithful, beloved, with the message? Or do you find yourself tweaking it a bit, or leaving some parts out to win over your audience? Do you customize the message to fit the needs of your audience? Questions that come from the text. Remember, what God has given us in the gospel is the norm for living. It is the standard for life and godliness. It is not compatible with any other worldview or philosophy of life. So let's proclaim it as we have received it and leave the results to God, whose will, of course, is perfect. We heard from our scripture reading this morning, 2 Peter 1, verses 12 to 21, Peter emphasizes the apostolic truth, the more sure word. And his point is that that the word that has come to us by Jesus himself, a direct revelation of truth, is more reliable than experience or what you can see. You can never trust experience or what you can see. We don't run our lives this way, and we shouldn't run our church this way either in the 1689 confession that we recite together every Lord's Day the divines mention in their article on the church that every legitimate church conforms to Christ's mind as declared in his word which is our authority to conduct worship and discipline that he has instituted for us to observe that's what they said and they were right Don't trust what seems right or looks right or might be confirmed by your experience because all of that will dissuade you from preaching the truth as you have received it. It may not attract everyone. It may turn people away. It may make a lot of them angry with you to the point where they persecute you will do all these things, yes, but you proclaim the truth to the glory of God. And you must be content to leave the consequences of your obedience to him. Our Father, we're grateful for this truth that you have preserved for us in this fascinating letter, a letter, a personal letter of the Apostle, a letter of love, really, that that drove him, motivated him, speak frankly and the truth for he knew that only the truth would would turn these people around and that you work through the truth. Father we pray that the, the lessons that are here for us we would take to heart especially in this day where people do play fast and loose with the Bible in churches and outside her walls is just absurdity We pray that we would know the Word better, that we would commit ourselves to it, for it is our wisdom. And we pray that you would be honored by the way we wield it, and that you would use our efforts to be true to the Word for the benefit of your church as well. We pray in Jesus' name.